Hello and welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPAPAC. Today, our destination is high-yield psychiatry and behavioral health. So sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Really quick, before we get into today's episode, I would like to provide a trigger warning that we will be discussing things like suicide and homicidal ideation, substance abuse, domestic violence, and other hard topics that we must cover when reviewing psychiatry. Please know, patients with psychiatric diagnoses can present in a variety of ways, but the high yield we will cover will either be based on the criteria for DSM-5 diagnoses or the buzzwords associated with the psychiatric diagnosis. If you or someone you know are experiencing thoughts of suicide or emotional crisis, please call 988 to talk to someone 24-7 toll-free. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is also available 24-7 at 800-799-7233. Thank you, and let's begin the show. Hey everyone, it's Becca. Today we're going to be covering the highest yield topics incorporated in the Psych EOR, going in descending order of the content covered on the blueprint, starting with mood disorders, which make up 18% of the EOR. Your patient is a 22-year-old female who presents to primary care due to multiple episodes this year of anhedonia and lack of motivation for at least two weeks. When questioning her further, she reveals there are some instances when she is elevated and happy and doesn't know why she gets so depressed sometimes. She states her periods of elevated mood last about four days up to one week, and she feels on top of the world and has a lot of motivation without even feeling the need to sleep. Given her presentation, what is your top differential? Bipolar 2 disorder. Bipolar 2 differs from bipolar 1 by the duration of hypomania, and at least one clear historical account of major depressive disorder. Overall, you can think of bipolar 2 as less severe than bipolar 1, and also must have at least one episode recorded of major depressive disorder, whereas in bipolar 1, you don't have to have that depressive disorder to make that criteria. But remember, anytime psychotic features are present during a manic episode, the diagnosis is considered bipolar 1. Additionally, bipolar 2 should never lead to hospitalization or major impairments, and if this occurs, you should be suspecting bipolar 1. Treatment of bipolar 2 is going to be the same as treatment for bipolar 1, which is lithium or quetiapine, which is also known as Seroquel. The MDD that's present in bipolar 2 can be treated with combination antidepressants with antipsychotics. Antidepressant monotherapy is contraindicated in patients with a history of mania or hypomania because it can induce mania without having that buffer of the antipsychotic. First-line treatment for bipolar 1 is essentially whatever stabilized the acute manic episode, which is usually something like lithium or other antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, or a combination. If malignant catatonia exists in bipolar 1 with major depressive disorder, with immobility or waxy flexibility, with fever, rigidity, signs of autonomic instability, First line for that is ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. Remember, mania and hypomania criteria is met when the three dig fast components exist for seven days in bipolar one or at least four days in bipolar two. Do you recall what dig fast stands for? Dig fast. 
distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, activity, sleep, and talkativeness. Just to kind of get into a few of those, things like impulsivity are those things that really show a poor judgment during the time of mania. So reckless driving, risky sex, spending lots of money. Basically, the impulsive nature of the mania prevents them from thinking about consequences to any of their actions, and so they're really acting impulsively. Grandiosity can be seen with inflated self-esteem. Flight of ideas is like racing thoughts. Activities for A is that psychomotor agitation and just doing a lot of things, which can include that goal-directed behavior. For S, sleep, this actually is a decreased need to sleep. So it's a patient that's saying, I have so much energy, I don't need to sleep, and even if I don't sleep, I still have the same amount of energy. It's not a patient with something like insomnia where they're like, I want to sleep, I'm freaking tired, and I want to go to bed, but I just can't. They won't be saying that. When they're manic, they have a decreased need to sleep and will still have the same amount of energy and they don't care about sleeping. There's also T for talkativeness, and this should be thought of as that pressured speech where they're really, 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 really wanting to talk to you about something and very pressured. It's very intense. Um, And that's what you'll kind of hear in that bipolar uh, manic state. Your 18-year-old male presents to the office due to persistent feelings of worthlessness over the past couple weeks. He has had no interest in any of the things that used to make him happy, and he's been having a difficult time sleeping despite feeling completely worn out. His mom urged him to come in because she has a history of depression and felt this was similar to what she experienced in the past. He denies any known triggers of his mood change and denies any periods of expansive elevation. What is considered as first-line treatment for your top differential? SSRIs and psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is the first line in mild to moderate depression that does not have any features of psychosis or apparent chronic or reoccurrent characteristics. Otherwise, or if asked specifically for first-line pharmacotherapy, you should be choosing SSRIs like fluoxetine, paroxetine, citalopram, escitalopram, or sertraline. Typically, if the patient doesn't respond to the first choice SSRI after about four to eight weeks, you would do a trial of another SSRI before choosing something like an SNRI. However, SNRIs are increasingly becoming more common as first line, but usually in an exam, they're looking for SSRI. Positive family history, substance abuse, chronic pain or illness, and severe stress are all risk factors for developing major depressive disorder. Screening can be performed with things like the PHQ-9 or even Beck Depression Inventory for primary care. Diagnosis can be made if the patient has at least two weeks of depressed mood or loss of interest in addition to four of the following. Weight change, insomnia or hypersomnia, psychomotor agitation or retardation, feelings of worthlessness and guilt, decreased concentration, recurring thoughts of death or suicide, and decreased energy or fatigue. This criteria can be summed up by the mnemonic SIGI CAPS. Do you remember what SIGI CAPS stands for? This is sleep, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor, and suicidality. If the patient has had persistent or recurrent episodes of MDD for two years or longer without any remission longer than two months in that time, the diagnosis is called dysthymic disorder, which is also known as persistent depressive disorder. The first line will be the same here, which is psychotherapy with SSRIs. What is the difference between postpartum unipolar major depressive disorder and postpartum depression? Postpartum 
postpartum unipolar MDD begins within four weeks of delivery, whereas postpartum depression is a persistent depression that can occur anytime within the 12 months following delivery and will interfere with daily living. This will also be treated with therapy and SSRIs. Okay, we'll touch on some more mood disorders at the end of the episode during our rapid review, but now let's move on to anxiety disorders, which also make up 18% of the EOR. Your 45-year-old female patient is referred to your psychiatry clinic due to excessive overthinking and worry that has been predominating her thoughts for the past six months. She states she's worried about nearly everything, from her children to finances to driving and everything in between. She has had difficulty concentrating on much else and her anxiousness has made her irritable and tense. All her labs return within normal limits. What is considered first-line pharmacotherapy for the suspected diagnosis? Again, this is SSRIs. These will be dosed about half as the dosing for major depressive disorder. So SSRIs are also going to be the first-line treatment of what this patient has, which is generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is the most common psychiatric disorder seen in the elderly and is defined by a persistent anxious state that occurs most days in a six-month period. And this is going to be about a variety of things and not just one specific worry. So they're going to be pretty much anxious about anything. For this diagnosis, a patient must find it really difficult to control their worry, and three of the following should be present. Restlessness, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, irritability, muscle tension, and sleep disturbances. First line for GAD, again, is SSRIs, and that will be in the combination of cognitive behavioral therapy. Venlafaxine is an SNRI that is also FDA-approved for long-term treatment of GAD, but again, the first line will still be SSRIs. Your 22-year-old female patient arrives to the ER about an hour after experiencing an episode of chest pain and shortness of breath earlier today associated with nausea, palpitations, and a sensation of doom, which started abruptly and lasted a little over 10 minutes. EKG is within normal limits and all of her lab work is normal. She has never experienced this before, but states it all seemed triggered after getting laid off from her job. What is she describing? This is a panic attack, which is not considered a disorder within itself unless it's occurring repeatedly and unexpectedly, and this leads to a behavior change in order to avoid having a panic attack or one month of worrying about having a panic attack. That diagnosis would be panic disorder. The patient in the stem does not meet the requirements for a diagnosis of panic disorder at this time because she's describing only one panic attack and we have an identified trigger which is getting laid off from her job. Because differentials for panic attacks and panic disorder includes life-threatening disorders, you must rule out conditions which can present this way too, like hyperthyroidism, hypoglycemia, electrolyte imbalances, anemias, and even infections. Workup should include those labs to rule out physiological causes of symptoms, including something like an ECG or even Holter monitor to rule out cardiac causes. Your patient has an overwhelming fear of driving over bridges, which is beginning to interfere with her work as a regional manager, which requires her to travel frequently. What is the long-term treatment option for her diagnosis? Her 
Her diagnosis is specific phobia. This is the most common psychiatric disorder and most commonly occurs in women starting around childhood in which this fear of an object or a situation will later lead to anxiety and avoidance that will cause distress or impair function in some way, such as in our patient who's finding it difficult to go to work. In phobic disorders, that first line is going to be exposure therapy, but long-term farm options can be discussed, which includes SSRIs along with cognitive behavioral therapy. Short-term therapy like short-acting benzos or even beta blockers are useful in initial short-term treatment, especially in cases where the exposure can't be avoided. Diagnosis of specific phobia should only be considered if this patient has experienced symptoms for at least six months. Just to add on a caveat here, I will say that in psychiatry, a lot of your differentials are based around the time or duration the patient has symptoms. So make sure that when you are creating your comparison sheets or when you get confused between two similar sounding diagnoses, look at that time difference because usually that might be the only difference between a certain disorder. Your 45-year-old male patient has been experiencing a lot of sadness and anxiety following his recent divorce two months ago, and he's been having a hard time sleeping and staying on task at work because he's constantly thinking about how things could have been different. What is his diagnosis at this time? Adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder is when a person has a difficult time coping to a stressor but is not a trauma. A stressor would be something like a life change or going through some sort of life phase. So it can be included but not limited to things like divorce, moving, a breakup, new job, getting laid off, things like that. In order to diagnose adjustment disorder, the emotional response must develop within three months of the onset of that stressor, inhibiting their ability to function normally. That's when it's considered a disorder. A lot of times in psychiatry, to have a diagnosis, this has to be clinically significant enough in which it causes actual impairment or distress, impairment in your relationships with others, impairment with your job or school. It really has to be causing some sort of issue to be an actual psych diagnosis a lot of the time. As our patient has, adjustment disorder can be subtyped to predominating symptoms involving mood, anxiety, or disturbance of conduct. So our patient in our stem has adjustment disorder with a predominance of anxiety. Acute adjustment disorder resolves within six months and chronic adjustment disorder can be diagnosed if the behavior is lasting longer than six months, but the stressor itself must be ongoing. The treatment for this is psychotherapy and you really don't want to confuse adjustment disorder with acute stress disorder or PTSD in which the stressor involved is much more severe and is much more consistent with a trauma rather than a response to a stressful life phase or life event like divorce or moving. Your 29-year-old female patient is referred to your psych clinic due to distressing nightmares and intrusive thoughts about her combat deployment when she returned home a few months ago. She states she didn't get hurt herself but witnessed the death of one of her friends and keeps replaying the memories over and over. Sometimes she's feeling like she's living it all over again. Her partner says she's more irritable than normal and she jumps at the slightest sounds. What is the first line treatment for your top differential? So again, SSRIs like sertraline are considered first-line pharmacotherapy for PTSD. Nightmares can be treated with prozosin, which is an alpha adrenergic blocker. First-line therapy for PTSD is called trauma-focused therapy. 
Though our patient is female, keep in mind that currently the most common cause for men to have PTSD is secondary to combat, and for women, the most common cause is secondary to assault and rape. Screening for PTSD can be done with the PCL5, and criteria to meet diagnosis include directly experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event, as our patient did in our STEM, and unlike adjustment disorder, the stressor must be an exposure to an actual or threatened death serious injury, or sexual violation, in addition to the presence of persistently re-experiencing that trauma for more than one month. So they'll be avoiding the reminders, and then they'll have two or more symptoms related to hyperarousal, whether that's getting really jumpy, not being able to sleep, um, being very agitated, irritable, all of those are symptoms of hyperarousal. Remember, while benzos are relatively contraindicated as a treatment for PTSD due to the substance abuse potential, there have been some studies that suggest using benzos immediately after the trauma for sleep and to help processing the event, and later that can improve the anxiety and stress responses. Remember, the above patient meets the criteria for PTSD because her symptoms have been persistent for longer than one month. If those symptoms lasted less than one month, the diagnosis would be acute stress disorder. The onset is usually around three days after the trigger versus PTSD, which can happen anytime after the trigger, but the duration will be longer than one month. We will touch more on anxiety high yields later, but now let's get into substance-related disorders, which make up 14% of the EOR. Your patient is a 26-year-old male who arrives to your psych clinic after his girlfriend told him he had an alcohol problem. During your evaluation, you find out that since he was about 24, he's been drinking one to two beers a night, likes to party on the weekends with his friends, and can drink up to 8 to 12 beers during those nights. He has never been arrested or gotten in trouble for his drinking, but he admits he occasionally has driven home on nights after a little too much to drink, which causes arguments with his girlfriend and a lot of distress between them. He has tried to cut back in the past, but states he has difficulty sleeping without his nightly beers and thus starts drinking again. Given your suspected diagnosis, how should you initiate your treatment plan? Most substance use disorders, like alcohol use disorder, respond well to motivational interviewing or some other form of psychosocial treatment like AA or CBT, and that should be provided to all patients with alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder is the third leading cause of preventable death in the U.S. and can be diagnosed in anybody with at least two criteria in a 12-month period. Again, in order to be a diagnosis of AUD, there has to be some significant level of impairment or distress. You can remember the criteria with a mnemonic I found on PsychDB that's called Wild Addicted. W for work, school, or home obligation failure. INL for interpersonal or social consequences. D for dangerous use, such as our patient had with driving under the influence. A is for activities given up or reduced because of the alcohol. D is dependence, which means tolerance. The second D is also dependence for withdrawal. I is internal consequences like physical health or psychological health. C is cannot cut down or control use. T is time-consuming use. So that means like time seeking out the drug or time focused on getting the drug or time thinking about the drug. D is duration or amount greater than intended. So either the duration of time that you spend focusing on that drug or alcohol or the amount that you ingest is greater than you actually intended. So somebody can go out saying, well, I only meant to have two beers, but I ended up having eight. So that would be considered meeting one of those criteria. About two days after your patient quits drinking, he arrives to the ER altered with nausea, vomiting, and diaphoresis. Vitals reveal a heart rate of 112, temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit, and blood pressure of 190 over 100. 
What is his diagnosis at this time? This patient has delirium tremens. This is the most severe form of withdrawal and is considered a medical emergency. DT is typically seen about 48 hours from the last drink in which our patients experience autonomic hyperactivity and an altered mental status. Autonomic hyperactivity. So think of tachycardia, hyperthermia, hypertension, hyperactivity. Treatment for DT or prevention if a patient is at high risk of DT is with high-dose paternal benzos like diazepam. Criteria for withdrawal does not need to meet criteria for DT, but instead is at least two symptoms of withdrawal, which include hand tremors, transient tactile or visual hallucinations, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, anxiety, psychomotor agitation, or your heavy hitters like seizure and autonomic hyperactivity as seen in DT. Your 17-year-old male patient is brought into the clinic by his mom due to his odd behaviors. She states he's been excessively giggly and not concentrating on any of his chores. When questioning the patient, he feels he is totally fine and actually pretty relaxed, but sometimes just loses track of time. Physical reveals injection of bilateral eyes. What is the complication associated with your suspected diagnosis? Complications of cannabinoid intoxication include decreased memory, attention, concentration, and even transient psychosis. While overdose of cannabis itself is not commonly seen, aside from perhaps cannabinoid hyperemesis syndromes, synthetic marijuana like spice or K2 can be deadly. Cannabis is the most widely used illegal psychoactive substance in the world and can lead to abuse potential given the activation of the body's reward system, aka the dopamine mesolimbic brain circuit. Symptoms of intoxication include a euphoric affect, increased perception of external internal stimuli, so somatic sensation like feelings of floating or even sinking into the bed or the couch, and cognitive distortion of time, perception, memory lapses, and difficulty concentrating. In patients with moderate to heavy use, a urine drug screen can remain positive for up to one month, while mild use might only be detected for one to seven days. What substance use disorder should be suspected in a patient with an erythematous rash around the mouth, history of mood swings, facial flushing, and an unusual odor of both breath and body? Inhalant-related disorders with sniffing, huffing, or even bagging of solvents. Acute treatment is supportive, but if severe aggression is seen, you might need to give haloperidol or treat any medical complications, as high doses of this can lead to cardiopulmonary failure, liver and kidney disease, and even bone marrow suppression. However, prolonged abuse itself of inhalants can essentially damage nearly every organ. What are some signs and symptoms of opioid intoxication and overdose, and how do you treat? In opioid intoxication, patients will usually first experience euphoria, which can later turn to apathy. In overdose and intoxication, you will see something like pinpoint pupils or slurred speech and impaired memory. Patients also usually have constipation, which does not improve even when tolerance is built. The most common vital sign abnormality in overdose is hypoventilation, which will eventually lead to both respiratory and CNS compromise. Treatment for overdose first consists of supporting the airway and breathing with oxygen and a bag valve mask if needed. Next is naloxone, which is a pure opioid antagonist, and that should be given to all patients with opioid overdose or suspicion for an opioid overdose. Don't forget, patients should be discharged with naloxone, and patients with OUD 
or those with opioid therapy for medical reasons can also be given preventative prescriptions of naloxone outpatient as well. Your patient is brought to the ER by his parents due to strange behavior and a high fever after returning home from a concert. Physical reveals dilated pupils, blood pressure of 160 over 90, heart rate of 133, and a temperature of 101.3 Fahrenheit. What substance do you suspect as the cause of his current presentation? MDMA leads to signs and symptoms of sympathomimetic toxidromes, including hypertension, tachycardia, and hyperthermia. The sympathomimetic toxidrome also is seen with cocaine and amphetamines, and it results from adrenergic stimulation of norepinephrine and epinephrine, which leads to the symptoms present in the stem. MDMA use is part of the overall diagnosis of stimulant disorders, which includes cocaine and amphetamines. In all of these conditions, pupils will be dilated with use versus opioid use disorder where meiosis or pinpoint pupils is seen. Don't forget that beta blockers should be avoided in patients when sympathomimetic toxidromes are suspected due to unopposed alpha potentially leading to cardiovascular collapse. Okay, that was a lot of substance use disorders. We'll hit on even more high yields later, but for now, let's go to schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders which make up 12% of the EOR. Your patient arrives to his annual follow-up and is in generally good health with no new complaints. Social history reveals he's been having difficulty with his marriage because he believes his wife is cheating on him. He states, despite her denying this and not being able to find any proof of it, for the past month he's had this belief and he continues to have this gut feeling she's being unfaithful that he can't shake. What is the number one goal of treating his persistent, fixed, false beliefs? Establishing a therapeutic alliance is the first-line goal of treatment for the diagnosis of delusional disorder. Delusional disorder occurs when a patient has one or more persistent, fixed, false beliefs for at least one month without hallucinations or major functional impairment. In fact, you might not ever even know a patient has delusional disorder without directly asking them about their delusion during an interview. Additionally, patients often have such belief in their delusion that they're even resistant to this as a diagnosis at all because in other areas of life, they're generally well-functioning without overt bizarre behaviors. The most common subtype is persecutory delusional disorder in which a person believes they're being attacked or harmed in some way. Other subtypes include jealous, like in our stem, grandiose, which is feelings of inflated self-importance, erotomaniac, which is the belief of celebrity or a person of unattainable social status is in love with them, or even somatic, which is the belief something awful is happening inside their body. If the somatic belief is parasites living in the body, consider the diagnosis of delusions of parasitosis, which might be accompanied by the matchbox sign in which the patient will actually bring samples of debris or dead skin into the container to prove their infestation. In delusions of parasitosis, the initial management is the same as in delusional disorder with establishing a strong therapeutic alliance and fully respecting the patient's autonomy in all encounters. If the patient is amenable to therapy, second-gen antipsychotics with a low side effect profile like aripiprazole is considered first line for pharmacotherapy. Remember to rule out systemic differentials for somatic delusions, including scabies, uremia, cirrhosis, and substance use disorder in patients with delusional parasitosis. What criteria differentiates schizoaffective disorder from schizophreniform or schizophrenia?
Remember, affect is similar to a patient's mood or how they present their mood, so schizoaffective disorder should be suspected in a patient who meets the diagnostic criteria of a mood disorder like depression or mania and also meets the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. However, in the patient's history, they must have at least one two-week period in which they continue to have the schizophrenic symptoms like delusions or hallucinations in the absence of their mood disorder, so in the absence of being in a depressive or manic state. Because if their mood congruent 24-7, then that leads to a diagnosis of something like psychotic depression or mania with psychotic features. Schizophreniform disorder meets the criteria for schizophrenia, but the duration of symptoms is only between one and six months, and no social or occupational impairments will result from these symptoms. They should be closely monitored for the development of schizophrenia, but the diagnosis itself is schizophreniform disorder. Schizophrenia is diagnosed if these symptoms last for at least six months, with at least one month of two or more criteria in which one criteria has to be either delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech, which all are considered positive symptoms. Catatonia may also be seen in schizophrenia in which the patient has decreased reactivity to their environment, which is secondary to that profound neurocognitive decrease in motivation that leads to the negativism or resistance to like instructions, bizarre posturing, mutism, or purposeless movement. Negative symptoms, which include flat affect, decreased fluency of speech or productivity of thought, and a bunch of words starting with A, such as elagia or diminished speech, avolition or decrease in self-initiated purposeful activities, anhedonia, which is lack of finding pleasure in previously enjoyed activities, as we see in depression, and asociality, which is lack of interest in social activities. In schizophrenia, there must be a diminished level of functioning that affects at least one area of their life. So like I said before, that can be relationships, work, school, something like that. Treatment of schizophrenia is with second-gen antipsychotics like risperidone, olanzapine, and eripiprazole, which are most useful for treating those negative symptoms and have fewer side effects than the first-gen antipsychotics. Positive symptoms are usually attacked with those first-gen antipsychotics, and those are with the dopamine antagonist, aka the typical neuroleptics like haloperidol. So really, when you're thinking about schizophrenia versus schizophreniform disorder, you really want to think about timelines. Same thing with brief psychotic disorder in which the same symptoms of schizophrenia or schizophreniform disorder are seen as well, but these are only less than one month. So for the differentials of schizophrenia or psychosis, think about your timelines. For less than one month, that's just going to be a brief psychotic disorder. One to six months, that's when the diagnosis turns to schizophreniform disorder. And six months on is when you have that diagnosis of schizophrenia. Now let's move on to disruptive impulsive disorders and neurodevelopmental disorders, which make up 10% of the EOR. Your three-year-old male patient is brought in to see you by his parents because of speech delays. They say he seems to be uninterested in trying to communicate with them or even look at them. They state he hit his walking milestones on time, even though he repetitively likes to walk on his tiptoes. At daycare, he has little interest in playing with the other kids and instead likes to sit by himself, putting all the toy cars in a straight line. What is your suspected diagnosis? Autism Spectrum Disorder. This is seen with repetitive behaviors and difficulties with social interaction and communication, and that's evidenced in our sim by the speech and language delays and also his poor eye contact. Occasionally, aggression may be present, and right now the FDA-approved treatment for aggression and ASD is with risperidone or aripiprazole. 
Your 10-year-old patient is brought to the psych office by his parents due to his aggressive behaviors this past year. He's been getting in trouble for bullying at school, has been setting fires in his backyard, and was caught kicking his family's cat multiple times. Even when caught, he lies and blames his sister or classmates for his behavior and does not seem to have any remorse when confronted. What is the first-line treatment for the suspected diagnosis? Multisystemic treatment is the program recommended for patients with conduct disorder, which is an intensive integrative program emphasizing correcting those behaviors. The best medication to use in patients that have both conduct disorder and ADHD is with methylphenidate. Criteria for conduct disorder is met when the patient violates the rights of others for at least 12 months. This is seen by acting aggressively or violent to people or animals, destroying property, deceit, theft, serious violation of home or school rules like running away overnight at least two times or being truant all the time from school. So it's really about breaking laws in a way. And that's how you differentiate it from something like oppositional defiant disorder, which is really just arguing with authority and being very confrontational. Whereas in conduct disorder, there'll actually be a lack of respect for the rights of others or their property or things like that. Another difference between conduct disorder and ODD, which is that oppositional defiant disorder, is that ODD has to be present for at least six months for the diagnosis. But conduct disorder, that has to be present for at least 12 months. Conduct disorder is currently the best predictor of antisocial personality disorder, which can't be diagnosed until the person is 18. All right, let's move on to personality disorders and OCD-related disorders, which make up 8% of the EOR. Your new 30-year-old female patient comes to your psychiatric clinic to address her new onset issues with anxiety. She states she's usually in tune with her body and typically uses crystals to heal her ailments, but has felt her energies are blocked off and she hasn't been able to connect with nature and her guardian angels as she typically does, which has left her super lonely because she doesn't have many friends. She tells you her aura has been feeling really dull and she has been seeing an excessive amount of crows, which makes her feel like something awful is coming. What personality disorder best fits this patient? This is schizotypal personality disorder. These patients are classically described as having long-standing quote-unquote magical thinking and beliefs that might be odd to others, but they don't actually represent real delusions or hallucinations. They may avoid really close personal relationships due to a more underlying paranoia versus having any negative self-thoughts. It's more about what's going on in the world. And there might be some distortions in thought and perception with odd behavior, which typically begins in childhood, and at least five of the following criteria need to be met ideas of reference, and this is thinking things based in reality, like seeing the crows in our stem, has a specific relation to the patient. Number two is odd beliefs or magical thinking, and these beliefs influence behavior and they're not consistent with subcultural norms. For example, crystal practices as healing or magical spells or hexes, the stem is usually going to be based around something like that. But it can also include things like believing they have some clairvoyance or telepathy or even having really bizarre fantasies. Number three is unusual perceptual experiences, including bodily illusions like auras. Four is suspiciousness and paranoid ideation, thinking something bad might happen or there's bad omens out in the world. Five, inappropriate or constricted affect. They might be caught up so much in their thinking that they blunt the experience to connect with others and seem hesitant to accept other ideas that are more based in reality. Number six is behavior or appearance that's considered odd, eccentric, or peculiar. So I really think of this as like flowy, 
movements. Like maybe you might have seen in Harry Potter with Professor Trelawney. Like that's how I usually like to think about what a schizotypal personality might be like. Lack of close friends is number seven. This is due to some discomfort and avoidance of close personal relationships. And it's not like antisocial where they don't care or borderline where their relationships are explosive or rocky. This is really just a discomfort and distrust in others. Number eight is excessive social anxiety that doesn't diminish with familiarity. So again, paranoid fears that aren't due to negative self-judgments about themselves, but more so about others. And remember, their personality and the criteria won't be exclusive to anything about schizophrenia or mood disorders with psychotic features, but instead this is an overlying baseline personality that's been persistent for a very long time. Treatment is with psychotherapy and antipsychotics, but most patients with personality disorders are resistant to treatment because their entire belief system about themselves is very much based in reality and their underlying personality. Remember, most people in general exhibit one or more traits that make up various personality disorders, but that doesn't mean they have the personality disorder unless the full criteria is met. For example, I totally believe in clairvoyance and mediumship, as do many others, but if myself and others are still functioning within society and not overtaken by our magical beliefs that is so difficult for us to trust and interact with the world, it's just a trait and not an actual personality disorder. Your patient is a 27-year-old female who was brought to the emergency department after threatening to commit suicide when her partner was trying to leave to hang out with his friends. Her records show this is the sixth time this year she has been involuntarily admitted after threatening to commit suicide. Though she has not made actual attempts, she has a history of self-harm behaviors, which she says are triggered by others not caring about her enough. What are other common traits of her suspected personality disorder? One really high yield thing about borderline personality disorders to remember is splitting. This is the idea of being all good or all bad depending on how they interpret or perceive your actions. So you might see this in the stem as firing multiple healthcare workers despite loving you or another coworker. And these patients will also exhibit a really intense interpersonal relationships and lability of their mood, which can occasionally look like mania or hypomania. But remember, these mood swings will be a lot quicker than will be seen in mood disorders like bipolar. So you can have multiple moods and explosive moods within the same day versus like a manic episode, which will be over a period of days of this elated mood. They perceive their lives as being in constant crisis. So they'll have longstanding history of suicide threats or attempts, typically when feeling rejected by somebody or something. Despite the rocky interpersonal relationships, often their mood swings are a result of this intense fear of rejection. So validating distress is a really useful way to engage these patients, and the most promising psychological therapy for them is dialectic behavioral therapy, and that teaches emotional regulation and coping mechanisms after identifying triggers and relearning how to react to certain emotional triggers. Your patient is referred to you from their PCP due to their treatment-resistant depression. During your interview, they get teary-eyed that they're disappointing their PCP because they can't seem to get better and feel like they're failing them. They state they have been overwhelmingly lonely and are longing for more friends or relationships with others, but they were bullied so much in high school, they have extremely low self-esteem and fear others won't like them. So they stay at home all day instead, which is added to their depressed state. Which personality disorder is best represented by this patient? Avoidant personality disorder. This is part of the cluster C personality disorders and is evident by a similar problem with interpersonal relationships as we see in a lot of these personality disorders, but the difference here is that patients have a strong desire to make these friends or relationships, but it's their self-esteem and fear of rejection that keeps them from achieving this. So they might be really hypersensitive to criticism and failure, which might appear in the stem as this inability to hold on to jobs for a long period of time or even maintain relationships. The first line for this is cognitive behavioral therapy. 
While working at a plastic surgery suite, you meet a patient who is asking for their third calf muscle augmentation due to perceived defects from their last surgery, which is not evident to you during exam. His chart reveals he has had 16 cosmetic surgeries in the past five years. What do you expect is his underlying diagnosis? Body dysmorphic disorder. These patients will have an overwhelming preoccupation around their physical appearance and perceived defects, regardless if it's something others even notice. This is seen in many patients with comorbid substance use disorder, OCD, eating disorders, etc. The stems will usually present with patients who keep on going to their dermatologist or a plastic surgeon for cosmetic procedures, and they'll also usually exhibit these repetitive behaviors like checking the mirror or excessively grooming or seeking reassurance from others. First-line therapy is SSRIs like fluoxetine or cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll get into more of those later. Now let's move on to somatic symptom and related disorders, which make up 8% of the EUR. Your patient is a 41-year-old male who arrived at the hospital with signs and symptoms of intestinal perforation without any known cause, and he has to undergo hours of surgery to save his life. While in the surgical suite, you find multiple batteries corroding his GI tract. His records show this is the second time he has had to undergo surgery secondary to feigning an illness. What diagnosis do you suspect? This is factitious disorder, which is formerly known as Munchausen syndrome. These patients will feign illnesses and play the sick role in order to get attention and sympathy from others. It's not for external rewards like getting a medication or financial gain, as seen in malingering. Any objective findings you see are from self-harm in order to maintain the sick role, and they'll often be willing to undergo really dangerous procedures or taking risky medications in order to maintain the sick role. The most commonly falsified objective sign in these patients is actually hypoglycemia, secondary to taking insulin. To maintain safety in these patients, you need to routinely assess suicide risk and monitor for self-injurious behaviors. To make the diagnosis, you must have objective identification of illness falsification behaviors with evidence of deception. So you can't just assume a patient is feigning an illness based on your suspicion. You have to have cold, hard facts. What is the difference between illness anxiety disorder and somatic symptom disorder, aka somatoform disorder? Illness anxiety disorder occurs when there's chronic excessive preoccupation for at least six months about having a possible disease, and a patient might even perform excessive health-related behaviors like repeatedly checking vital signs at home or exhibiting maladaptive avoidance like avoiding hospitals and annual physicals because they have an intense fear that they have something serious undiagnosed going on. Most of their symptoms are based on the fear surrounding disease itself. Whereas in somatoform disorder, they're going to really focus on the physical sensations and interpretation of normal body functions as physical symptoms. So these patients with somatoform disorder aren't focused on a particular illness, but instead the actual bodily sensations that they have and interpret as symptoms. You should be scheduling regular outpatient visits with these patients and refer for psychiatric evaluation. Another differential to keep in mind is functional neurological symptom disorder, formerly known as conversion disorder in which the patient is not intentionally producing symptoms or misinterpreting physical sensations, but instead has actual somatic signs, and these are secondary to a significant stressor occurring, such as paralysis, involuntary movements, or even seizures. The first line for them is developing a therapeutic alliance, and first-line therapy is insight-oriented or behavioral therapy, 
physical therapy, and CBT. 95% of patients with functional neurological symptom disorder will have their symptoms spontaneously resolve in two weeks. But again, they are not feigning their illness and they are not misinterpreting their bodily symptoms. This is an actual functional neurological condition secondary to a significant stressor. Okay, we'll move along to feeding and eating disorders, which make up 8% of the EOR. Your 17-year-old male patient has dropped a significant amount of weight since his last visit and is weighing in at about 17.5% BMI. He reports he's been trying to quote-unquote get fit for summer and still sees excessive stomach fat when he looks in the mirror. He states he's eating one meal a day, which typically consists of a single piece of fruit or protein shake. Given suspected diagnosis, what might his lab show? So this patient has anorexia nervosa, as we can see in his BMI of less than 18%, and his associated fear of gaining weight or preoccupation with losing weight. So you might see things like increased LFTs, decreased renal function, decreased secretion of hypothalamic pituitary hormones, decreased bone density, increased total cholesterol, and that's due to the increase of HDL and not LDL. Differentiate anorexia nervosa based on the low BMI. Bulimia nervosa is when patients have a normal or elevated BMI. Both of these disorders are secondary to obsession with weight loss or a fear of weight gain. Physical signs of anorexia tend to be things like stress fractures, amenorrhea, lanugo, and muscle wasting, whereas physical signs of bulimia might be secondary to purging behaviors such as eroded tooth enamel or dental caries of posterior molars, tenderness to bilateral parotid glands, and presence of Russell sign, which is the visualization of calluses over the knuckles. In patients with bulimia nervosa, labs will typically show hypochloremia from vomiting and hypokalemia due to the renal compensation, along with things like hypomagnesemia and metabolic alkalosis. I like to remember the acid-based dysfunction from vomiting as metabolic alkalosis because you're vomiting out all your stomach acid, aka the hydrochloric acid, which is why you also have that hypochloremia. Whereas in diarrhea, I think of your quote-unquote pooping out your bicarb leading to acidosis. That's not the actual mechanism of bicarb decreasing here, but it helps me to visualize the difference between metabolic alkalosis in vomiting and metabolic acidosis in diarrhea. Lastly, before our rapid review, let's quickly touch on some paraphilic and sexual dysfunctions, which make up 4% of the EUR. Which paraphilic disorder is characterized by having significant urges or fantasies to specific objects or non-genital body part? Fetishistic disorder. These patients will be aroused by things that aren't considered sexual in nature, and they have to cause clinically significant distress or impaired functioning, aka disruptions in their life or relationships, for this to actually be a disorder. Your patient comes to your psych office due to intense fear regarding his overwhelming sexual urges to hurt or torture his partners during sex. He states, imagining these things is the only way he can achieve orgasm and he fears one day he will act on these urges. What paraphilic disorder does he exhibit? This is sexual sadism. It's represented by either behaviors or fantasies about harming or causing psychological torment to others in order to achieve sexual arousal, which leads to distress or impairment in function. Don't confuse this with sexual masochism, in which the person has distressing desires for someone else to harm them, either physically or psychologically, in order for them to achieve arousal. All right, it is time for our rapid review. What is the end metabolite of ethanol? 
acetate. Remember, the primary metabolite of ethanol oxidation is acetaldehyde, which is toxic to the body and has lots of effects you might feel when you drink too much too quickly, like nausea, facial flushing, or even when you drink so much, the metabolites build up and give you a hangover. The liver converts the acetaldehyde to acetic acid, which is the inactive metabolite that's later converted to carbon dioxide and water. So remember, ethanol, will be converted into acetaldehyde, which is later converted into acetate. And I'm sure it's no surprise that the liver is the primary site of oxidation of alcohol. What comorbidity is commonly seen in binge eating disorder? Type 2 diabetes. What is the first line treatment for pedophilic disorder? Libido reduction with medroxyprogesterone IM, which leads to testosterone synthesis blockade. What presentation is seen in pediatric patients with separation anxiety disorder? Fear of leaving home, refusing to attend school, and overall excessive fear regarding separation from their attachment figures for at least four weeks. In adults, separation anxiety disorder tends to present with dependency or overprotective behaviors surrounding the possibility of separation from their attachment figure for at least six months or longer. So in children, it's at least four weeks, and for adults, it's at least six months or longer. What is the criteria for diagnosis of ADHD? So this is symptoms of hyperactivity or impulsivity and or inattention that is present in at least two areas of interaction. So things like school and home and it has to be at least six months beginning before the age 12 at this time. Which cluster A personality disorder is represented by a lack of desire for close relationships and preference for solitary activities? Schizoid personality disorder. What is the female athlete triad? Weight loss, irregular periods, and osteopenia. What are some symptoms of PCP intoxication? PCP is an NMDA receptor antagonist similar to ketamine, so this will lead to symptoms of euphoria, numbness, agitation, unusual strength, dilated pupils, with vertical and horizontal nystagmus. High doses can lead to possible coma, seizures, severe hypertension, and psychosis. What are the components of residual symptoms seen in schizophrenia even between episodes of psychosis? Flat affect and auditory hallucinations. What is the most common time a patient suffering from intimate partner violence is assaulted? When attempting to leave their abuser, what is the first line treatment for OCD? SSRIs like fluvoxamine, fluoxetine, sertraline, paroxetine, and this will be two times the dose as used for depression. Second line is clomipramine, which is a TCA. First line pharmacotherapy should be combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on exposure and response prevention. What is the difference between social anxiety disorder and agoraphobia? Social anxiety disorder encompasses fear of embarrassment or ridicule in social situations, which prevents them from wanting to go out. Agoraphobia involves fear around things outside the house, like public transportation or open spaces. And they're not really afraid of ridicule or humiliation, that they more so just have a fear that they can't escape a certain situation or that something awful will happen to them while out in public. What are the screening tools used in alcohol use disorder? Cage and audit C, and that can determine mild, moderate, or excessive use. What part of the limbic system is hyperactive in specific phobias and PTSD? 
the amygdala. This is part of the brain that will assign a particular emotional significance to external stimuli and then will modify your behavior in response. Which cluster B personality disorder is characterized by grandiosity and attention-seeking behavior with the belief that they're entitled to special treatment with a need for admiration all while lacking empathy for others? Narcissistic Personality Disorder Unlike the short, sudden bursts of grandiosity one might see in psychosis or mania, patients with NPD will have persistent beliefs of entitlement and grandiosity that's really stable among time and situations, and they'll likely get angry when they feel others aren't treating them as if they believe they should be treated. What ocular finding is commonly associated with shaken baby syndrome? Retinal petechiae What is the mechanism of action for first-line treatment of ADHD? Methylphenidate non-competitively blocks the reuptake of dopamine and noradrenaline by the blockade of transporters for both, and that leads to increased dopamine and noradrenaline in the synaptic cleft. What labs may support a diagnosis for alcohol use disorder? This is things like elevated AST over ALT with a two to one ratio, or macrocytosis like in folate or B12 deficiency, or even elevated GGT. What is the duration of brief psychotic disorder? Symptoms of schizophrenia for less than one month. What is the time frame of acute stress disorder? Symptoms begin at least three days after an intense trigger and must resolve within one month of onset. Remember, if the symptoms are over one month, diagnosis is then considered PTSD. What are some high yield findings for opioid withdrawal? This is things like piloerection or goosebumps, yawning, rhinorrhea, lacrimation. Unlike withdrawal from alcohol use disorder or benzo disorder, withdrawal from opiates is not life-threatening. You can also differentiate the pupils and withdrawal versus intoxication in which the withdrawal will lead to the dilated pupils like medriasis and use or overdose in opioid use disorder leads to meiosis or pinpoint pupils. What is the triad for Wernicke's encephalopathy? Memory impairment, gait disturbance, and ocular motor dysfunction like nystagmus. This is secondary to thiamine deficiency and if not treated can progress to the irreversible diagnosis of Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome which is characterized by that anterograde amnesia which is the inability to make new memories and confabulation in which the brain will make up new memories for the patient. What personality disorder is characterized by flirtatious behaviors and impressionistic speech? Histrionic personality disorder, which is cluster B disorder. What diagnosis can lead to chocolate brown blood? Methemoglobinemia leads to dark discoloration of blood. This can be associated with genetic conditions, but also exposure to things like amyl nitrate. You'll treat that with IV methyl and blue, supplemental oxygen, and exchange transfusion. What are two common over-the-counter pain medications which can lead to false positives on drug testing? ibuprofen and naproxen. What psychiatric medication can induce hypothyroidism? Lithium. This can also lead to teratogenicity and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. How do pupils appear on somebody who's on cocaine? Dilated and reactive. What is considered first-line treatment for extrapyramidal syndrome? anticholinergics like diphenhydramine and benztropine. When is the use of bupropion contraindicated? 
seizure disorders, or use of MAOIs in the previous 14 days. What is dissociative fugue? This is a subset of dissociative amnesia in which the patient actually travels or wanders while in their dissociative state. What is the treatment for benzodiazepine withdrawal? is actually long-acting benzodiazepines or IV benzodiazepines with a slow taper. Similar to alcohol use disorder, withdrawal from benzos can lead to seizures and death. Where does morphine and codeine come from? These come from a poppy plant and they're considered naturally occurring opioids. What is the mechanism of action for second generation antipsychotics? Blockade of the dopamine and serotonin receptors. There's also some action on A1 and H1 receptors, which all lead to the high yield adverse effects like EPS, QTC prolongation, sedation, orthostatic hypotension, etc. What is depersonalization? This is the feelings of detachment from one's own self and perception of the body. First, derealization, which is the feelings of detachment to somebody's surroundings as if the world or events that are occurring around them aren't real. What is the most common personality disorder? Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder. This is perfectionistic behavior that's egocentric which means their perfectionism does not bother them, it just bothers others. Unlike actual OCD, which is egodystonic, when they recognize their obsessions and subsequent compulsions as something disabling. In OCPD, pharmacotherapy is only used if there's comorbidities like depression or anxiety, but not to treat the actual OCPD itself. Which first-generation antipsychotic has the highest risk of tardive dyskinesia? Haloperidol, which is a first-generation antipsychotic, aka neuroleptic. Second-generation antipsychotics with the highest risk include risperidone or olanzapine. You want to familiarize yourself with the signs and symptoms of tardive dyskinesia, which include involuntary hyperkinetic movements such as facial grimacing, lip smacking, tics, akesthesia, dystonia, and chorea. TD is considered chronic and is typically irreversible, which is why it's so important to really recognize this early and discontinue that causative agent ASAP. Which second-gen antipsychotic requires monitoring of WBCs and absolute neutrophil count due to the black box warning for severe neutropenia? Clozapine. Clozapine can lead to life-threatening agranulocytosis. What can be used as both prevention and treatment for delirium tremens? Again, this is paternal benzos like diazepam in high doses. What is the treatment for neuroleptic malignant syndrome? Dantrolene and bromocryptine. Don't forget to discontinue the causative agent and provide supportive treatment as well. What is the most common comorbid diagnosis with ADHD? Oppositional defiant disorder. Up to 50% of patients have both. What are some high-yield adverse effects of olanzapine? Weight gain, which leads to metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. What is a contraindication of naltrexone? Hepatic failure due to the risk of increased LFTs. Oh my gosh, we did it. That was a lot of high-yield psych. Thank you guys for joining me. This was a doozy. Psych is one of my favorite my favorite subjects. It was one of my favorite rotations. Um, I also remember just being so disillusioned as seeing how many things overlap with medical diagnoses that might be considered a psych diagnosis at first. So I really want to make sure that in practice, you are not just assuming somebody has a psych diagnosis. 
just because they present with something like psychosis. Thanks for tuning in and please check out passpackpodcast.com for additional resources and the transcript and site sources. Also, be sure to follow me on Instagram at passpack underscore passport. Please like, comment, share, do all the things to help get Passpack Podcast out there. And I appreciate you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for joining me today on Passpack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, Passpack is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on Passpack do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.